Welcome to Day by Day, the verse-by-verse Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, with Pastor Phil Ballmeyer. We're glad you've joined us, and we look forward to spending time again in the Word of God together. We also invite you to stay tuned at the end of today's broadcast for information about additional studies and resources. Thanks again for being with us. Compromise in the church will stifle its effectiveness for God. In the Church of Pergamos, that compromise came in the form of idolatry. We'll learn what the Lord had to say about this as we open our Bibles to Revelation chapter 2 and join Pastor Phil for today's teaching. The word Pergamos comes from two Greek roots. Per is a word that means mixed or objectionable. And gamos is the Greek word for marriage. Think of monogamy, polygamy, bigamy. You, You hear that Greek word in there. Thus, Pergamos literally means a mixed or objectionable marriage, something God never intended for his church. The church was always called to be separate from the world, right? In fact, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through 16, he admonished Christians and churches, he said, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial or Satan? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. So God forbid us from partnering with the world. He forbid Christians from marrying unbelievers. He forbid churches from partnering with the world to do anything for the, for the kingdom. And in verse 13, Jesus said, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name. So he's commending them still. And did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Nothing certain is known about Antipas. I just love this because if his name hadn't been mentioned here, we would never even know he'd existed. Except Jesus knows him. Jesus knows all of us. And history may not record any of our names, but Jesus knows exactly what we do for him, and we will by no means lose our reward. But Antipas, we don't really know anything about this gentleman. He was probably one of the leaders of the uh, Pergamos church. According to church tradition, Emperor Domitian had him placed inside a brass bull. Apparently he had this torture implement. It was a brass bull, and he was able to somehow open it up. The inside was hollowed out. It's big enough to put a person in. Then it was closed up, and they would light a fire underneath it, and it would start to glow red hot, and the person, of course, would be burned slowly to death. A horrible way to die. Jesus calls him my faithful martyr. The Greek word is martis. It's a word that's usually translated witness. And yet, in those days, because to stand up and be a witness for Jesus usually meant you were going to be killed, the word martyr became synonymous with those who die for their faith. But here was a man who paid the ultimate price because he refused to compromise. 
His name means against all, against all. Here was a guy who didn't follow the crowd. He didn't live by the philosophy, well, if everyone else is doing it, it must be okay. He was not a man pleaser. He was a man who stood up for his Lord in faithfulness against the world. And Jesus holds him up, I think, as a stern rebuke to the rest in Pergamos who were compromising with the world, who had fallen into or had sold out to, really, the world and were compromising. And he says, Antipas, my faithful martyr, who was killed among you, where? Where Satan dwells. This is interesting to me, where Satan dwells. Sometimes people think that Satan is omnipresent. He's everywhere. Satan is not omnipresent. He is not God. He is a created being. Only God is omnipresent, which means God's presence not only fills the entire universe, it also fills all of time. So God is eternal, and his presence fills the entire universe. He's omnipresent. Satan is not omnipresent. And one place that really clearly points this out is Job, chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Where you remember the story how it says, Now there was a day when the sons of God, and that's a term for angels, when the angels of God, the angels of heaven, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, Well, from going to and fro on the earth, from walking back and forth on it. I'm not saying he doesn't get around. He's just not omnipresent. And please, if, if you have any doubts where Satan is, he is not in hell ruling. He is not in hell ruling. He's on the earth. He still has access to heaven. In Revelation chapter 12, we're going to see that a war is going to break out in heaven. Michael and the good angels are going to fight against the devil and his demons. And he will be cast out of heaven. And God help the world because he's coming down with great wrath. He knows he's only got a short time left. But he's not omnipresent. He gets around and I'm sure he's got a nice intricate network of demons posted everywhere where they can communicate information back and forth. I mean, you know. We got cell phones. They got something that they can use. I mean, they're on constant contact. They, they know what's going on. Believe me, he's not stupid, but he's not omnipresent. I think it's very interesting, though, where in Revelation we read that at this time, his headquarters or his throne was in Pergamos. It does seem that there are places in the world that seem to be really demonic strongholds, doesn't there? Some places you go to, you can almost... There's almost a palpable feel of some nefarious, dark cloud that seems to hang over. Maybe you've experienced this walking into some homes. You've got people that are messing around with the occult and opening doors to demonic entities. If you're a spiritual believer, as soon as you walk into that home, you sense something isn't right. Something is wrong. It does seem... And I'm really looking at Daniel chapter 10 as a kind of a basis for this. But remember in Daniel 10, Daniel knew the captivity, he's in Babylon now, he knew the captivity was going to be over soon. And he wanted to find out if God had anything for him to do. Because Daniel was a a prime minister there in Babylon. So he begins to, to fast and pray for three weeks. He just eats probably unleavened bread and water. And you remember the story. This, to me, is one of the most fascinating stories in the Scriptures. All of a sudden, one day, an angel appears to Daniel. 
And he says something that is incredible. He said, Daniel, I want you to know something. You're, you're greatly beloved by God. And from the very first day that you set yourself to fasting and praying, I was dispatched with your answer. But I was withheld by the, the demon, really, of the Grecian Empire. For three weeks, there was this battle going on in the spirit realm. Here this angel was dispatched by God to get a message to Daniel, and the angel was held up by a demonic entity who was really, in Greece, wasn't even going to be in power for another 200 years. Already, the prince of Greece, this demonic entity, was already in place for the next world empire to arise. And this angel says, for three weeks I battled this, this demon until Michael, one of the chief princes, came and, and give, gave me aid and I was able to break through. And I've come here today with your answer. Wow. It tells you that if you're praying, don't give up because your answer may have been dispatched, but it's being held up. Don't lose heart. Keep praying. It just shows us, though, and it seems that the Bible does teach something of territorial demons, that demons are territorial. Now, there's a whole teaching that has arisen around this, and I don't subscribe to all of it or even much of it. But it does seem there is a basis for the idea of territorial demons, that Satan at different times had his throne placed in different locations on the earth, where, which was a center For all the evil that he wanted to do, which is in the way of false religion, everything designed to keep people away from the truth. All right, Jesus gives the commendation. Now he moves to the accusation. In verse 14, he said, but I have a few things against you. Boy, don't you know you don't want to hear that from the Lord. Hey, this is good. This is good. I have a few things against you, though. Oh, man. Because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality, um, really spiritual fornication is the idea. Some of your older translations have spiritual I'll tell you why I prefer that. It's not just sexual sin that's in view here. It's spiritual unfaithfulness too. But what is this whole incident? Well, it takes us back to Numbers, chapters 22 through 24, and then in chapter 3. 31 of Numbers. Let me tell you what was going on here. And I'm not going to have time to go through the whole story. It's a fascinating story in and of itself. Uh, But Balaam was a prophet of God. And at this time, the children of Israel were on the move. God was with them, and they were on their way to the promised land. And everywhere they went, God was with them. No enemies could stand before them. And now they're approaching the kingdom of Moab, which is situated on the southeast part of the Dead Sea. Balak is the king of Moab. He realizes there's there's no way he's going to be able to defeat this army because God is with them. So he figures, well, I've got to try to, I've got to have some help here. I'm going to need some some help. And so he, he knows Balaam is a prophet. And so he sends money and messengers to to try to bribe him to come and curse the children of Israel so that Balak's armies can be victorious. And there's a whole story that transpires. You know, Balaam says no at first, but he's greedy. They come back with more loot, more, you know, stuff. And, oh, you know, and God tells him don't go. And he's like, you know, complaining. And, and he's kind of like badgering the Lord. Like, I can't, I just, I, I just want to, I won't do anything wrong. Just let me, you know. And finally the Lord says go. 
And along the way, you remember the story how his donkey stopped the few, The donkey had more spiritual insight than this prophet. The donkey saw an angel of the Lord with a sword drawn, and the donkey kept stopping. And Balaam is so greedy and so fixated on getting there and getting the money, he doesn't even see, the donkey sees the angel, Balaam. So the donkey at one point lays down, and Balaam starts kicking his thing, and, and the donkey talks to him. He says, you know, why are you kicking me? I mean, haven't I always been a good donkey? Have I ever acted this way before? And the miracle, I think, was not that the donkey talked, but Balaam answered. <laughs> he starts talking to this donkey. Well, finally, God opens his eyes and he sees the angel and, 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 and you know, and he's like, I'll go home, I'll go home. You know, and the, and the angel says, no, go ahead, but you better not say anything but what I tell you. And as the story progresses, he comes to Balak, and on four different occasions, now here's Israel camped out in the valley. On four different occasions, he takes Balaam up to a mountain, you know, four different mountains around where the Israel is in camp. Every time he does, they build an altar, and there where Balaam is now supposed to curse these people, he pronounces, the Spirit comes upon him, he pronounces a blessing. Balak is getting more and more furious as time goes on. He doesn't feel he's getting his money, his money's worth on this deal, because I brought you here to curse them, and you're blessing them. Finally, the fourth time, Balak says, you know what? I would have really prospered you, but your God has kept you from prosperity. It's interesting. We got people today saying that God wants to give you prosperity. Here we have a situation where God kept somebody from prosperity because it was going to be bad. It was going to be bad. So you know what Balaam did? He was so greedy. He shared something with Balak that is called here the doctrine of Balaam. Ingenious. He said, look, these are God's people. No matter what I, I do, nobody can curse them. I'm going to tell you what you can do, though, where God will curse them himself. Here's what you do. You get some of your prettiest young gals, get them all dressed up, real kind of, you know, sexy and, and, and promiscuous and all. Have them go down into the camp of Israel and have them kind of get the, the young men kind of worked up. And what you want to do is you want them to fall in love with these gals, to marry them. And when they do, the girls will teach these Jewish men how the Moabites worship their gods. And, of course, these gods were worshipped through sexual orgies, through all kinds of lewd practices. So what you had here was Balaam talking Balak into causing his young pretty gals to intermarry with the men of Israel. So you had the people of God entering into defiled marriages with pagan women. And the result was these men the children of Israel began to offer sacrifices to idols because that's how it worked. You offered a sacrifice to an idol. You engaged in sexual um, orgy. And, of course, everything sacrificed to an idol was then eaten. So you were eating meats. They were completely defiled by this practice. Why does Jesus bring up this ancient story and apply it to the believers at Pergamos? Because, in a sense, they were doing the very same thing. There was a group in the church, apparently a big group, that were basically saying there's nothing wrong with being friendly to Rome. 
What harm is it in putting a pinch of incense on the altar and affirming your loyalty to Caesar? Remember, people in Smyrna were being killed for that very thing. Every year you were required by Roman law, they didn't care who you worshipped in the way of gods, but every year you were required by Roman law to stand before a bust of Caesar, usually in a temple somewhere, take a pinch of incense, put it in the sacrificial fire, and each person was required by law to say, Kaiser Kurios, which means Caesar is Lord. Smyrna, they were saying, no way. Jesus is Lord. We have no Lord but Him. Pergamus, people began to think, well, what's the big deal? What's the big deal? What's it going to hurt if I put a little pinch of incense in the sacrificial fire and pledge my allegiance to Caesar? What what harm is it going to cause? Well, Antipas refused the compromise and was martyred. But the others, they took the easy way and cooperated with Rome. Now, what this did was it allowed them to work in the Roman guilds. Remember we said that every Roman guild or trade began its workday with a pledge to a various god or goddess that they worship in the Greek pantheon of gods. And again, Christians wouldn't do that. They wouldn't pledge allegiance to a pagan deity. So they couldn't be a member of the guild or the trade, so they couldn't work. That's why in Smyrna they were so poor. They were, they were devastated. There was abject poverty. But in their mind they were staying pure to their Lord. Here, though, because Christians were willing to pledge allegiance to Caesar, they were allowed to work in the Roman guilds. Of course, they were protected from Roman persecution. It seemed to be a good deal for them, except it cost them their testimony and their crown. And Jesus indicted them. He said they were sinning. They were committing spiritual fornication and saying, Caesar is Lord. And that's what I want you to see here. Yes, the sin of Israel... And no doubt the sin of Pergamus, as it compromised with Rome, it did open the door to further compromise, probably in the area of sexual immorality, because then Christians began to probably play around worshiping some of these other pagan deities, just like they had done in Israel's day. But it wasn't, wasn't just sexual immorality. It was spiritual fornication. They were being unfaithful to who? Who were they married to or betrothed to? Jesus Christ. Paul said, I betrothed you as a chaste virgin to the bridegroom, Jesus Christ. As a church, we have been betrothed to Christ. When the rapture happens, the first thing we're going to do is sit down to the marriage supper of the Lamb and be officially married to our groom. But here was a church that was engaging in spiritual adultery, spiritual fornication. They weren't being faithful to the Lord. In verse 15, Jesus mentions something else he hated that they were involved in. He said, Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Now we've already looked at the Nicolaitans in the first letter where Jesus talked to the church of Ephesus about those practicing the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Not in Ephesus, but Ephesus was guarding against this kind of thing. But there were those around who were practicing the deeds of the Nicolaitans. What are the Nicolaitans? Well, we don't really know. I think the best way to look at who the Nicolaitans were is just to take the name Nicolaitans and look at it. It's made up of two different Greek words. One is Nikeo, Nike, the god of victory or to conquer. And then the word we get our word lady from. Nicolaitan literally means to conquer over the people. In what sense? It seems that this was a group of men in the church 
who decided to stand between the Lord and the people and say, look, you're not worthy to come to God directly. We're the leadership. We're the clergy. Clergy is not a concept that you'll find in the New Testament. We're the clergy. We're a little holier than you are. We're a little closer to God than you are. You're really not worthy to come to God directly. Even though when Jesus bowed his head, dismissed his spirit, at that very moment, the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. You know how high that thing was? Eighty feet. They say it was about ten inches thick. And God tore it from top to bottom, signifying no man could get up there to tear that thing. God said, because of what my son has done, now you're all a kingdom of priests. And every one of my children has the right to approach me. You don't need a go-between. You don't need a mediator. Christ has become your mediator. You don't need a priest, a cardinal, a bishop, a pope. You can come to me directly because of what my son did. That's part of the blessing of the atonement, right? And here comes a group of people that say, oh, no, no, you're not worthy. You've got to come to us first, and then we'll go to God for you. Can you imagine, do you understand why Jesus said, this is something I hate? The doctrine of the Nicolaitans. And I want you to notice one other thing, and we'll move on. The deeds of the Nicolaitans, as spoken to the church of Ephesus, 200 years later in the age of Pergamos, of church history, I should say, became the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. It started out with a practice, and then it was kind of canonized, or it was turned into a doctrine. So in the apostolic period, you had some people acting like priests and things. 200 years later, the Roman Catholic Church came on the scene. That practice was made a doctrine, and we see it today. Well, in verse 16, then Jesus moves to the exhortation. He says to this church, repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He's talking here about judgment. I want you to notice this, though. He says, repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them. Them. When Jesus talks about fighting against them, I believe primarily he's talking about those people in the church, their Pergamos, who were not really saved. They were the terrors among the wheat. They were the phonies living alongside the genuine. They were the mixed multitude that loved the world because they were still basically of the world. Remember when God led the children of Israel out of Egypt under Moses? And we read how all these people, the Jews who who loved God, uh, initially at least, came out. But we read in Numbers, I believe, how there was also a mixed multitude that came out also. What was this mixed multitude? Well, they were a group of people that were, in essence, thrill-seekers, people that were along for the ride. I mean, here's Jehovah. He's working pretty powerfully. He's just defeated Egypt, basically. You're going to hang around and associate with the losers? You're going to attach yourself to the winners, right? But they had no heart for God. They had no real faith. They were, in a sense, in essence, simply religious unbelievers who decided, well, we're going to attack. Hey, things are happening with this group. It's like today. The Holy Spirit's working and things are happening. Revival is breaking out. You're going to always have a mixed multitude that's going to come, going to attach itself to the church there because they're excited about what's happening. They're wanting to draw that excitement for themselves and benefit from it. But they have no heart for God. 
and they are always the first to murmur and complain. They're always the first to compromise, and they wind up dragging everybody else down because a little leaven does what? Leavens the whole lump. We realize as we read the, the Gospels and the Epistles, there is, has always been among the true people of God the false. Whether you're talking about the wheat and the chaff, the wheat and the tares, the saints and the ants, the sheep and the goats, all throughout the Scriptures, the New Testament, we read that among the true people of God, there is the counterfeits, there are the phonies. Jude nailed them when he said in verses 11 through 13, Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain and have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are spots in your love feasts. While they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves, they are clouds without water, carried about by the winds, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots. You've been listening to Day by Day, the verse-by-verse Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, with Pastor Phil Ballmeyer. Today's message, as well as many other studies, can be heard and downloaded free of charge from our website at daybydayradio.org. From our website, you can contact us, order resources, read Pastor Phil's blog, and also subscribe to our daily podcast. We hope you'll pay us a visit. And remember to join us for Day by Day, Monday through Friday, here on this station. Thanks again for listening, and please join us again next time as we continue to study God's Word. Until then, may the Lord richly bless you and guide your steps as you walk with Him day by day. He said for me.